we've got six staff and, you know, when you're in a team that size, it's a really close group of people and you get to know each other very well. You know, a family is a term that's kind of thrown around probably too loosely, but it is a family in a way and you feel a responsibility to them and genuinely standing there and thinking, I don't know if we're going to be here in 10 months' time and what that means for them, their families, is, yeah, really hard to deal with. Hey, welcome to the Lady Brains podcast. We're your hosts, Caitlin Judd and Anna McKenzie, co-founders of Lady Brains, a digital and IRL club for female founders and founders-to-be. We're chasing down the most successful female entrepreneurs from around the globe, not only to hear their life story, but to extract their knowledge and world-class insights. If you're curious and ambitious, then Lady Brain, you are in the right place. Get ready for some hard-hitting truths, a dose of inspo, and learnings you can apply right away. Strap in. At the age of 30, Alex and her two best friends, sisters Kate and Hayley, decided they wanted to launch a business. They had many crazy ideas, but it wasn't until one of the girls saw a bright pattern bedspread in the US that the idea for Kip & Co was born, a bedding brand centred around bright colours, bold prints and a boho vibe. Since launching the business with two products, a self-made website and a big dream, the girls have grown Kip into one of Australia's leading lifestyle brands, expanding their offer beyond bedding into baby, apparel, kitchenware and home. Eight years on and it's all come full circles. Kip & Co is now available in the US, the same country where the original inspo came from. Despite an increase in sales during COVID, Alex and her co-founders have come up against some pretty big challenges and she's the first to admit that it hasn't been smooth sailing. This is where we started the discussion by asking Alex how they responded in the first few weeks of the COVID crisis and the impact that these early decisions have had on the business since then. Well, initially it was definitely all about work because there just was so many decisions that we felt like we had to make straight away. So in March, um, I don't even know what date that was now. Those first couple of weeks, though, when um, I suppose the restrictions started rolling out here, we made some um, snap decisions based on the information that we had at hand to try and protect us for the next six months, including like cutting our salaries, trying to diversify our supply chain. Um, We've reduced our footprint in the US. So we reduced our Um, our order for the back end of the year. So a lot of things that would normally be decisions we would make over months, we made in the space of kind of two days. (laughs) So that initial couple of weeks was definitely all about work. Um, But also when you're at home and you've got two kids and your boyfriend is Mm. here too, you can't kind of get away from the family bit as well and they need your attention too. So trying to find a little bit of a balance and probably failing, I think. (laughs) Oh, it would be a real challenge having a, having a family and I mean, having a family and a job, let alone having a family and a business in this kind of environment with the kids at home and trying to work and stuff. Yeah. I think it's a struggle that a lot of people are facing at the moment. Yeah. Although like we were saying before talking about, you know, the the different groups um, that have been impacted in different ways by COVID and, and I'm lucky that 
I think anyway, I haven't had school age kids because how hard to have to describe what's going on to them. And um, Quincy is two and Pearl is seven months. So she was only like four months old when this was all kind of happening. So obviously not not sitting down around the dinner table and trying to explain the global pandemic to them. Mm. So I'm lucky I didn't have that on my list of things to do in addition to everything else. But yeah, yeah, definitely quite hard. And I think like when you're pregnant and then when you've got a little baby, you're trying to be really calm and like nurturing body because you're literally um, feeding and keeping this little kid alive. And so then I was getting into this cycle of like, I'm, I can tell I'm feeling stressed and I don't want to pass that stress on to this mm. baby. So you get all these additional fun layers of stuff to work through. That is hard because they do say that, yeah, your children can, they take on your emotions, but mm. I, it, it's hard to compartmentalise or, or downplay how we're feeling right now. Um, yeah. So then you kind of get stuck in that, oh, my God, I've got to do the right thing by my family and my kids and and by your staff, that was really hard as well and, and continues to be so when you have a business and we've got six staff and you feel, um, you know, when you're in a team that size, you it's a really close group of people and you get to know each other very well. And, you know, a family is a term that's kind of thrown around probably too loosely, but it is a family in a way mm. and you feel a responsibility to them and the not knowing what was what we were facing into and what was about to happen with our sales and the business generally and genuinely sort of standing there and thinking, I don't know what, if we're going to be here in 10 months' time and what that means for them, their families, is, yeah, mm. really hard to deal with. And I'm sure, um, you know, throughout the conversation, you know, the impact of, of COVID is definitely um, going to come through. But we wanted to take it back um, to the very beginning of the Kip and Co mm. days. Um, can you tell us, you know, where did the idea for the beautiful, colourful bedspreads come from? Mm-hmm. Um, was there something, you know, was there a place that you went, you got the idea yeah. from? So um, I was prepping for this interview and oh. um, we always say we founded in 2012 but I was thinking, when did we actually first start talking about Kip? Because obviously the day it pops up on the interweb is not the day that the idea was conceived and there's a whole lot that goes on before that. So we registered the name Kip & Co in January 2011. So I think it must have been sometime in 2010 <laughs> that we were 30-year-olds kicking around um, just shooting the breeze, trying to come up with a business idea like so many of our friends were and continue to do. That's like a favourite topic of conversation for everyone. What good business idea do you have now? <laughs> um, <laughs> Sounds like us. Sounds like us. <laughs> yeah. Um, and so we had a few that were not very good. And then um, when Kate was in the US, she went to anthropology, which um, – just for anyone who doesn't know, is a, a mass chain store, but it's got quite a boho um, kind of aesthetic to it. And she found a um, quilted bedspread and it had a really um, kind of intricate pattern on it. It was really colourful and she came um, back with that uh, for her for herself, for her home, and, and said maybe 
we should be doing betting. And, you know, I'd, I say there, there was a gap in the market and I was reflecting on that as well. And I, I think maybe what's truer to say is that there wasn't a brand that really spoke to our aesthetic. So, yes, there was uh, coloured bedding out there, but there was no one that was kind of talking to um, our demographic um, in a kind of fashion-focused way. And so we're like, let's give this a go. And we did. So when you decided to give that a crack, what was the first thing that you did? So I think we tried to kind of pick apart the idea, I suppose. So um, was there really a need for it? Was it something we could seriously pull off? Because it's one thing to talk over a beer about doing a business, excuse me, and it's another to actually try and um, get it up and running. So there was a little bit of a coming to Jesus moment, like are we seriously going to jump? And um, once we kind of said, yep, let's go ahead and do this, we knew we wanted to do printed bedding. So that was something that anthropology was doing. So we had to come up with, um, I think we had two prints. So we didn't really overstretch ourselves there, (laughs) just nice and easy. One was pretty out there. One was a spot. So again, just kind of hedging our bets. Um, And then a couple of planes. Hilariously, we actually did plain white bedding in that first range with like a a pink (laughs) stitch on it. And that was it, which I can't kind of comprehend what, how that fit (laughs) in with the concept at the time. But I think we were nervous that people would still want um, something that was a little bit safe to pair back with the Mm. bolder pieces. Um, And once we had those prints, we worked with a graphic designer to kind of um, execute them. So Kate and Haley and I come up with the concept for every print, but then we're not technical um, designers. So we'll get uh, someone who's got some graphic design skills to kind of bring that to life. So we did that. We um, got a supplier uh, and to f- to find the supplier, we got an agent in India, which um, you can talk about a bit more um, later if you want, but that was a really key uh, moment, I think, for us, finding that agent who is still with us now and is very much part of the core tip, KIP team and if she... Um, if we hadn't kind of met her, I'm not sure that we would still have the business today. Like she's been absolutely essential to every um, decision. And then um, we sampled the product, got little tiny um, swatches of fabric and went to a trade show. So we, we stood at a trade show called Life in Style in Melbourne um, and we had made like hilarious kimonos from the offcuts of the <laughs> fabric. <laughs> so we were, we were wearing the brand and um, we had I think like two pillowcases and then a, a couple of swatches of fabric and uh, we had just done a photo shoot that was really um, maybe half a day of shooting at Haley's house uh, and a friend of ours who's a photographer shot that for us and we put the lookbook together and went to the trade show and that was kind of it. It all rolled from there. Why did you decide to go to a trade show? What were you hoping to get out of out of doing that? Uh, we wanted stockists. So yep. um, 
we launched simultaneously on our own website. Mm-hmm. So I think the, th- the three things we kind of invested in at the beginning was a little bit of stock. We had as low units as anyone would let us get. Uh, the photo shoot, which even through a friend, but we, you know, put photography and putting together of the lookbook can still end up costing a bit of money. So there was that, that expense and the website. So they were the kind of three things that we spent some money from, all of which were really basic. And, you know, I think the website cost us a few grand, I think. So everything was very smelly, oily rag, absolutely. (laughs) So we needed a way to get the word out. And um, yeah, I think going and getting stockers, we at that trade show maybe got 10 stockers and we were the happiest people in Australia. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely ecstatic. When I was little, um, we used to do the Red Hill Market. Um, My mum would get my sisters and I to like make gingerbread houses at Christmas and make like combs with little decorations on them and stuff. And you go to those things and you might not sell anything. I think mum was just trying to encourage us to get it out of the house or get a bit crafty. Um, so I, in, somewhere in the back of my mind, I think I was a little bit scarred by that experience. I was like, we could go and, and maybe no one's going to pick this up and yeah. that's okay because we've had a great time doing this and if nothing else, I've got this fabulous kimono that I'll never wear again. <laughs> <laughs> um, but we got those 10 stockers and it really it just kind of rolled from there. We got just enough money to kind of cover the next range. And that was a little bit bigger and a little bit better and again and again and again and then, yeah. And here you are. <laughs> yeah. So I want to ask because we have a lot of women in our community who are at the really early stage of starting businesses and there's one thing that always comes up with people which is I need to create a business plan and I don't know how. And so I'm curious, did you have a business plan in the early stages and did you understand kind of um, – what margins you were hoping to, you know, achieve and did you put that thinking in from a commercial point of view at the very beginning or was it really just like, okay, we're going to create this product, we're going to put it out there and we're going to see what happens? Yeah, we didn't, uh, no, we didn't have a business plan but that's not to say that's the way you should do it. Um, I think now as well starting and there's amazing resources like what you guys are doing, that would be so helpful. Like there's so much more out there um, for you to tap into Uh like with anything, you ask 10 different people, you get 10 different um, mm. ways to do something. And I don't think that there's any right or wrong way, although I th- it seems to be the consensus that a business plan is a helpful thing. Maybe we had one in a different sense, so I suppose is is where I'm going because um, we never wrote it down and 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 called it a business plan on the front page, but we definitely considered every kind of step. And and yes, we thought about margins absolutely when we were putting together our price list. So Kate, um, my business partner, is um, she did commerce. So when we met at uni, she was doing commerce. And so she can understand that side of the business in a way that I will <laughs> never, ever understand. <clears throat> but I think you, you kind of know more than you think as well. Like mm. um, when you're going in and trying to decide how much you can afford to play for a product, it feels like an unnatural 
place to start because it's in a bit of a vacuum, but actually you probably know if it's a product that is already out there in the world, you can say, okay, well, I need to be competitive with X company. So I use that as my starting point. And then if I want to be able to sell to stores, yes or no, if yes, well, I need to be able to make money off um, something that's kind of around 50% of the retail. And then working back from there, well, how much do I want to make off that? wholesale rate, taking into account freight. And yes, I had no idea what that cost, but people are pretty generous kind of sharing information. I think we spoke with, you know, I just call anyone who might have any clue about anything. Um, <laughs> I called <laughs> other brands. What kind of markup would you put for yeah. freight on a product, uh, you know, to get it here? Is it a dollar or two dollars approximately? What might it look like and kind of factor that in. And, and it, you, if you're starting with the RIP and you're working backwards, you can mm. f- kind of find the ballpark of where might be a comfortable um, zone for you in terms of your cost price. I love what you said there. Um, you know, we know more than we, we think. It reminds me of our interview with um, Christy Chong. We recently, from Body Body, we recently spoke yeah, to her and she said- Yeah, I listened to that one yeah, actually. Oh, did you? Yeah. yeah. She said, don't be intimidated by building a financial model. All it is, is a story in numbers. Um, yeah. And so, you know, again, and she asked a lot of questions. So you're really echoing her sentiment. Yeah. I think, um, and I'm uh, very- much of the same view. If anyone asks me, um, can we have a phone call or will you chat with my friend who's staying in business? I always say yes, because um, God knows I've done that a hundred times and I still do it and I will continue to do it. So, you know, that's all, it all comes back around, I think. Yeah, it's all karma. Yeah. If you pay it for for someone else, you know, someone else will pay it for for you yeah. for sure. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I think yeah. that's a really um, interesting thing and a great thing to call out because there seems to be this like, oh, you know, this um, mystery or this, uh, it's like almost you're too intimidated to go and ask a business owner for their information because you feel like, oh, well, they've t- they've built that up themselves. They've taken the time, you know, they've they've put the hard work in. Mm. So is it fair that I just go and ask, ask the questions and get the answers the easy way? But in, in actual fact, that's probably, you know, that's how we all did it, right? We went and asked mm. the questions and... Look, I think there's limits to it. I'm not um, opening up my supplier book and... Um, sharing that, but I absolutely would share tips on how you might go go about finding the um, right supplier for you or the right uh, freight company or distribution or whatever it is. Yeah. Okay. Well, that's a great segue <laughs> into our next section, which is all about suppliers. So uh, okay. <laughs> literally the next question. Um, so you said that you found an agent that um, you work with in India and that has been completely integral to building your business. So how did you go about doing that practically? And what tips would you give people who are looking looking for an agent or looking for a supplier? And like, how do you know if you need an agent or a supplier? Yeah. How do you know? Yeah. So I think um, an agent is someone who is the kind of conduit with all of your suppliers. So depending on how much time you have and what your kind of skill set and interest level is, you might want to outsource to an agent who can deal with the supplier network for you. It's not to say you don't um, still have a lot of involvement with them because we absolutely do, but uh, we having someone there on the ground provides a clear focus for them and they can kind of go to them with questions 
at any point in the week when we might be juggling other priorities. Um, we chose to have a, an agent in India, which is where we have done most of our uh, manufacturing, but we've now kind of diversified into China as well. I also think that that is really helpful to me, has been. Um, there's obviously uh, different cultural practices to take into account that is really hard to do um, from Australia, particularly when you've never kind of worked in this field before. I've got friends who've worked in fashion and they, they do deal with suppliers all the time and so they've kind of picked up that skill set along the way but it wasn't something that I had or my business partners had. So we were able to rely on our agent um, for her kind of local expertise, familiarisation with the supplier um, network there and um, experience in product development so that when we sent a spec sheet to her to pass on to the suppliers, it was kind of like a first check. So she would say, I don't think you're going to get back what you are hoping. If, if I just send this like this, I've got some suggestions. So she, she was really invaluable in that sense. Um, we found her through our own network. So just asking friends, do you, do you know any one manufacturing in India and there were, we had we did get a few people who shared um, actual factory names, and one person said, "This woman used to work at a large um, agency uh, that some of the like big Australian brands like um, Country Road and stuff would would use a really big company um, to be that agency for them." So this woman had worked there and then had um, decided to go out on her own and hadn't had any new clients yet. And so we approached her and we're at, we were her first client. So that was just a really nice moment where, you know, we both um, were starting out at the same time. So we really rely on her now to source the correct supplier and, um, you know, they need they all do quite different things. We've probably got a, a maybe eight uh, or so suppliers in India now because everyone has quite different uh, expertise. So she will find the right person for whatever new product we've come up with. In China, we have now got a production manager in-house, which is something that we only, um, we only added to our team maybe 12 months ago and um, has been such an amazing thing to have um, as part of the in-house um, group now. So KP is uh, like phenomenally experienced. She was at Gorman before she was a seamstress in initially, like she really understands the technical um, background to product development and has worked in the industry for kind of 20 years. So she is able to draw on her own kind of relationships in China, but also is quite um, is quite good at just being able to source new suppliers through that existing network. So if it's, you know, someone's doing knitwear for us there and we want to start doing denim, she would ask them as a starting point, do they have any suggestions and they might have Often it's a family member who has um, a factory mm. who's making something slightly different that they would put us in touch with. I also do know quite a few people who have found suppliers through Alibaba and I have looked there myself and I found 
you know, to me it was a bit overwhelming, but I probably would have persisted and just figured it out through there had we not had um, the agent option Mm -hmm. in India. And with agents, like how does that, how is that structured? Do they like, and I'm just thinking for people who are possibly thinking about um, using an agent, how do you structure those deals? Are they, do they work on retainer? Do they take a percentage of an order value? Like how does that yeah, work? No, exactly. They take a percentage of the order value. Yeah. Right. Okay. Yeah. So yeah, it's, you're all kind of in it together because it's, yeah. Um, they're incentivized to make sure they're delivering uh, amazing products that sells well mm. here and that we in turn um, are able to place a larger order the next season round and that they will therefore have a greater lump sum at the end because mm. their percentage revenue will represent a bigger mm. amount. God, finding good partners is just so critical, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, yeah. And it, it doesn't, um, you don't get it right first time round. Um you know, often it takes a few goes. So even with that agent there, uh, I remember that first delivery we got, I think we were pretty lucky that we kind of got through. It wasn't at a quality that we were happy with. It was different to what we had anticipated would be turning up and you hand over all your money and you're kind of crossing your fingers that what arrives on the boat is what you had expected and it just wasn't, it just wasn't. Um it wasn't terrible, but it wasn't it wasn't at a standard we would accept now, that's for sure. Um so we had to change suppliers straight away. And yeah, that's always hard because you feel like you just want to build a little bit of momentum <laughs> and you yeah, have a little oh bit gosh. of consistency and it's so hard to get. But yeah, I think yeah. once you then find those good partners, like you say, they're so invaluable. Mm. Um, yeah, you hang on to them. Yeah, for sure. Can you talk us through the impact that COVID's had on your supply chain? Yes. Um, so our suppliers are mainly in India. Uh, in March, they were still open, um, but we decided to scale back our order in anticipation of kind of retail downturn, then we actually have had um, the opposite. So we've seen sales increase because we've been kind of fortunate enough to be in a category that people are still spending. Yeah, but we will we will see what the rest of the year yeah. um, brings for us. But, yeah, so India was still, was still open but we scaled back and we actually, um, we were going to get delivery of a a small range that we kind of have as high winter in July and we decided just to leave that in India. So we didn't want to ship it and have it arrive here and us not be able to sell it. In hindsight, we could have sold it probably three times over. But we didn't know. Um, So we made the decision to leave it there and actually... I don't think that India would have been able to get it out in time in the end. So we left it because we thought what was happening in Australia would be problematic, but actually what's happening in India is going to be far more difficult for us and a lot of other brands to kind of navigate. So once they um, did go into lockdown, that had a knock-on effect to our um, main range uh, launch. So that normally happens in September, but India 
had a lockdown of about six or seven weeks and they actually have some regions have gone back into lockdown now. So we're just trying to be as empathetic and understanding as we can. We have moved um, a small collaboration that is launching in September to China and I think that was a really good decision because it means we, we do have some product arriving now in the time when we would otherwise have expected our main range to drop. So we'll have, we've got something else coming and it's meant that the pressure is kind of off our main range um, and India has a bit more time to produce and ship that, but we will wait. <laughs> we will wait to see and uh, obviously everyone in everywhere is just hoping that you can kind of get mm. on top of the health side of it and then the economy can, yeah. yeah, get back on track. But for India that's really, really hard because their economy is um, in a much more fragile state. Yeah. And that must be so stressful for your agent as well. I mean, she's having to manage all of your suppliers and all the manufacturers. Like how how's she doing? Yeah. Um, I think she has been really stressed and, um, yeah, she's done an amazing job keeping us updated with what's happening there, but it's an emotional time for her mm. as well. Um, yeah, I think it's just very, it's pretty difficult for everyone. For everyone. Yeah. yeah. And it must be challenging for you in terms of kind of forecasting and planning, not knowing when your new range and product is going to arrive. What kind of flow and effect does that have? Yeah, well, I think at the um, so we went to having so from ten years ago when we had no business plan, we now um, are doing kind of weekly cash flows yeah. and um, projections. Which Kate and we have a um, kind of finance manager have spent an enormous amount of time on um, making sure that we had as clear a picture as possible of what was kind of coming down the pipeline. Um, obviously. Things have gone in kind of the opposite way to what we thought, mm. um, but we still have to then, you know, plan for maybe a range arriving much, much later than what we had even anticipated and what does that look like that might be delivering really close to uh, Black Friday, Boxing Day mm. sales when everyone is kind of expecting to shop on discount and what, what would that mean for us? So... Just, um, yeah, working through all of those scenarios and it was mm. a, yeah, a weekly proposition at the beginning and now Kate and, um, yeah, finance manager is still speaking very regularly but Hayley and I are kind of refocusing on, on other matters now as well. So what else are you focusing on at the moment outside of obviously cash flow and stock and product development? Like what else is, um, yeah, where else is your attention right now? What else can you do? <laughs> yeah, in terms of the business generally. Or, yeah. 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 Um, so I'm focused on like marketing communications and um, so that includes social media, um, media and I've got uh, an amazing um, marketing coordinator, Amy, who uh, works with me in that kind of space. So we are just constantly trying to plan out as well as be reactive in terms of the brand management. So that's kind of um, where 
I'm focused at the moment. Uh, and Haley manages production. So KP, who I mentioned before, she and Haley work together on product development. And there's always a lot going on, particularly at the moment because of the kind of really fluid supply chain um, that we're dealing with. They're being kept very, very busy um, looking at both current range that's meant to be delivered but also mm. ranges that are due for delivery early next year. And Haley also manages all the photo shoots and we've got a photo shoot next week which is a huge um, kind of project in itself. And then Kate is, um, she's looking at in addition to finance all of the kind of e-com revenue side of things and um, we are hoping to launch a, a loyalty program in the next week or so so that's been oh, cool. a long time coming looking at lots of different options speaking to lots of different people we've had a few false starts where we start thinking about it and then get a bit overwhelmed to be honest by the choice and um, none of us have massive loyalty program users ourselves. So it's been a bit of a leap of faith, um, but we're nearly there. So that will be great to get that out. The Kip & Co customer is extremely loyal. So that <laughs> is a great strategy. <laughs> I hope so. Yeah, I hope they like it. You'll be signing up, Caitlin. Oh, my God, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Caitlin is a massive, like, just homeware. I mean, Kip and Co, but just general homewares and, like, Excellent. lifestyle fan. She loves it. <laughs> oh God, it's all Kip and Co on my yeah. bed right now. I was going to, yeah. Love Thank my, you. My Thank you for supporting throat. us. Yeah, no worries. Been a long, long, time, long time fan. Yeah. <laughs> so how do you decide? I want to talk about the product side of things and we'll get into kind of your creative process, which I'm really, really fascinated about. But, you know, you started out as just kind of the betting, as you said. How did you know where you wanted it to go um, in those early days and how do you make a decision about, you know, which category to kind of expand into and and what what were people consuming and loving? Mm. Yeah, so we, um, we started with adult bedding because of the initial concept was um, – had kind of come from that anthropology quilt, which was was adult bedding, and it's what we wanted ourselves. Um, and then it's you can really see like the life journey of Kate and Haley and Alex in the product because uh, as we've had kids, moved homes, um, kind of got into cooking more, whatever it might be, it's then that you say, oh well, actually there's no cool bedding for kids either. And then someone has a baby. There's not, there's no good sleeping bags for babies that have kind of a fun aesthetic. Why don't we have cooler stuff in the kitchen? Let's get some cutlery (laughs) happening. Like it's, um, it's probably less strategic and more driven by our own genuine preferences and Mm. tastes. And that is what the brand is anyway. So Mm. it kind of feels like a, a natural extension if we're like, we would buy this. Yeah. (laughs) I love that. It sounds very organic. It is. And yeah, we have, um, you know, we have two big strategy days a year um, because we don't, we have always worked really flexibly because there's been a lot of kids being born in um, the last 10 years. And um, so when we have those strategy days, we talk about everything and one of them is product development and everyone just comes with a full list of products that you would personally like and we kind of just um, 
run through them, think about what the challenges might be. Do we have an existing supplier that could produce it? Because if so, that's going to make life a whole lot easier. Um, is it kind of a problematic product like uh, baby space? <laughs> because there's a lot of regulations around that. So, you know, we'll kind of work through what are the pros and cons, I suppose, of every product and then have a bit of a short list, go out to the suppliers, um, get, you know, get prices back on what what their costing might be, and that will eliminate a bunch of them as well because we just wouldn't be able to do it for that price and that's an easy decision in a way. So, yeah, there's there's a lot, lot more that we could, could do. I would say we had a strategy day maybe a month ago and I reckon there was probably 40 or 50 products on the list. So, <laughs> and so how many of those 40 to 50 products, how many of those would actually end up coming to fruition? Like, is it a couple or is it um, like a quarter? How do you edit down <laughs> all of Yeah, it? how do you edit? I guess the cost piece is important. The cost piece is important. That- you, well, um, you need two votes. So two two of us have to oh, be good. into the idea. Good. Um, oh, it's so good if you've got three co-founders. Uh, it's like my own. <laughs> Majority rules. My only good piece of business advice actually is just make sure you've got uh, an uneven number, which you girls haven't uh, done. <laughs> we, we, we originally did and now there's just the two of us and we, oh God. Well, you can't, <laughs> yeah. yeah, with when there's just two of you or just one of you, how do you, yeah. how do you move past? Make a decision. Uh, I, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Yeah, you get a lot of deadlock. Um, so you need two votes on uh, on anything in this business, preferably three, but let's be honest, that doesn't always happen. Um, and then, yeah, it needs to be something that fits with the concept as well. So we have done some um, kind of probably unnatural add-ons, like I think jumping into adult and kids apparel is not, a natural extension for a homewares brand, but it was just something we really wanted to do. So gen- generally though, it should be something that f- sort of fits within that, um, the concept of, a, of the the lifestyle concept of Kip & Co. So yeah, I would, I think each season there's a handful of new products. Um, yeah, maybe, maybe three, something like that. So we kind of we chip away at them and you come back the following season and you look at the list again you, and you go, what were we thinking? Why is that on there? <laughs> I love that. <laughs> Lucky we didn't do that. <laughs> have there been any products that have just tanked, like that the customers didn't respond to? Or oh, there do definitely you, do you would be. I'm trying that. to think of something. It's, every season there'll be prints that are, that are uh, standouts and the, there's the ones that are going to um, be around at the end of the season, to put it nicely. It's hard to predict what they are. If we knew, we wouldn't have the, course, the ones yeah. that are going to be hanging around. Yeah. And then it, when it turns up, and I love saying to the team, what's your favourite? What do you think is going to sell? And it's so interesting to me. But, yeah, you start to kind of uh, second guess yourself because you, it's just the three of mm. us deciding in a little vacuum. We have spoken about doing um, like, you know, market research groups and getting their opinions. Um but I think in the end we'd just do what we wanted anyway. Anyway, so it's kind of like why invest? Uh, <laughs> I mean, it's, that sounds kind of rude, yeah. but it's like, um, you know, if if they were like, that print's terrible, 
it's something that you kind of need to see in the context of I think we would just be like but just wait just wait we're gonna style it up so nice you'll love it we We have the vision just like listen to us yeah it's hard it's hard if we could if they were saying no having seen it all styled up on a bed then sure but you would have to do a market research group from like a little swatch yeah, like yeah, this. Yeah. It's pretty hard yeah, yeah. to picture what's going on here. So I want to ask about that, this whole concept of vision and I guess brand as well because I think brand is such a differentiator for Kip & Co and it's such a strong brand. Did you always have a really clear vision about what you wanted the brand to stand for and to look like and to represent? Again, we didn't write anything yeah. down but I think we intuitively we knew. knew it because um, – it is an extension of our own aesthetic and that is the easiest brand to ever work on then. And I've worked in brand in corporates before and it's so much harder to develop a brand personality that feels like a real personality, like it actually has some substance to it that people can, um, I don't know, have some kind of relationship or engagement with. But this is just us. It's just always remained very true to uh, the three of us and and I think as long as we're still there, we don't need to kind of be too contrived Mm. about it and we've done brand guidelines before but they were really more around kind of, um, you know, what fonts you can use and the lock-up for the logo and stuff like that. But that really difficult intangible bit of brand, which is the thing that, companies try so hard to create the essence it's the essence yeah absolutely and that's something we haven't had to work too hard for well I guess you know yeah very grateful for you're authentic to yourselves and that kind of shines through and so it's you know every expression all of your shoots all of your products all of your like your website it's just kind of like as you said it's extension of yourself so it feels authentic and not yeah contrived yeah yeah we kind of are the well, we think we are our customer. So we're not trying to second guess what they want. And I suppose that's a little bit about the market research thing. It's like if if we really believe it and we would buy it, that's kind of doing the yeah, research, I suppose, yeah. for us in a way. Yeah. So how do you find that customer? Or how did you find that customer in the early days? Because, I mean, you know, the women that like style and lifestyle and fashion, like, Knowing that and knowing who you are and who your ideal customer is, how did you find channels to her to kind of introduce her to the brand? And how do you still do that? Like how do you acquire those new customers? Yeah, well, um, initially uh, it it really was relying a lot on stockers. Mm. So, you know, yes, that's a revenue stream, but they're also an amazing brand advocates yeah. for you and people can go in and touch and see and feel and it's hard to get a share of voice uh, on the internet now without, um, you know, investing a huge amount of capital to do advertising or whatever it is and we didn't have it. And um, so we were a lot more organic in that we, yeah, we used our bricks and mortar network to get our name out there and we chose stores that we thought um, were kind of representative of the customer that we we thought would be the KIP customer and um, and we 
worked as much as we could with Interiors um, magazine. So yeah. ones like Life and Style yeah. and, um, sorry, what am I saying, Real Living and Inside Out, um, those magazines when we launched were kind of the go-to um, place for interior styling aspiration, probably for someone in their 30s, I would say, 30s, 40s. Um, and having product placement in those printed magazines, which now seems like kind of limiting in a way, um, was was our main aim. That's, that was our primary goal. Now we have, uh, we're much more kind of diversified in how uh, we market and I suppose a bit more sophisticated, but um, the base that we built was really from those couple of things. So uh, we have had PR agents um, for maybe only a year. I don't think it was right at the beginning. It might have been a year in and maybe even two years in and I absolutely loved them. Uh, They were um, Lee, the guy we worked with, is great at his job but we had kind of already got a little bit of momentum with like Real Living and Inside Out and a couple of those ones and um, had the relationships with the stylists and editors there and so we weren't seeing a lot more come through from PR that we weren't already getting and it was a really big expense relative to our other expenses at the time which were pretty much nil and um, we just decided we would keep it in-house and it's marketing something that it's what I have done um, for you know, half of my career in like corporate comms, media marketing stuff. And it's something that Hayley in particular is a real natural at and was really interested in doing. And so if, if you've got, um, a job that your little team is capable of doing, then that's something that you should do. You should outsource the stuff that you can't do and someone would be better at. So we just decided we wouldn't do, um, outsource PR. When we went to the US, we um, got another PR agent there and that probably helped us a bit more in the US than it did in Australia because it's much harder for us to establish those relationships. Um, But ultimately we decided it wasn't worth it there either. Again, just the cost to return, um, we just decided to kind of wing it. So aside from Instagram, what's working? What how do you acquire your customers now? And you spoke about, um, so firstly that, and then you spoke about obviously your um, loyalty program. I'd love to know how many customers, how many like repeat buyers you have. I would love to know that too. <laughs> You're like putting her on the spot here. Yeah, I really put you on the spot. Um, oh, I feel bad because my business partner, Kate, will be like, I've told you oh, that. Sorry, Kate. I don't know. <laughs> sorry, Kate. Um we will be increasing the number. Mm. I think it's the, trending the diplomatic That's all you need to know. <laughs> <laughs> it's an upward trend. Um, uh, so, wait. Now, in terms of marketing, we uh, we do a, quite a bit of um, advertising now. So, Facebook and Instagram advertising. We only started doing it maybe two years ago, and. Um, yeah, I think there's something really comforting about being able to 
get a little report that tells you what the return on investment is and mm. you feel like, yes, that was worthwhile. I'm glad we did that. Yep. Whereas other PR, it's always really hard to kind of quantify the benefit. You've got yeah. to, yeah, you've got to kind of trust that there's the uh, kind of intangible benefit to the brand, brand awareness that you're building. But it's a, it's a harder case to make when you're spending, um, you know, money and time on it. It's always a little bit tempting to just put that uh, investment into advertising now. So I think that's the um, that's the juggle that mm. we have in in mm. kind of marketing is making sure that you don't just get completely swept up into advertising. Yeah. Um, so yeah, we we do that. We spend quite a bit of time on our. Um, we're trying to spend more time as well on our. EDMs that we um, send out to our subscribers. We've got probably about 50,000, I think. So they're, um, and we've got a really great uh, open rate Mm. that's like well above industry average. So we're trying to provide them um, content in there that they are kind of interested in reading that's beyond just the kind of product selly stuff. So, you know, having the blog and trying to do a few more of those things, it's, yeah, when we have time, um, we're we're trying to round out that offering, I suppose, as well. Um, We do obviously Instagram and Facebook, which is uh, we kind of have an ongoing debate about whether they should have different strategies or... Um, you know, you can kind of maintain the same content and copy for both. That's interesting because we also talk about that. Mm-hmm. Mm. Yeah. What, what's your consensus? <laughs> I think that from a resources point of view, um, we've landed on it's it's probably good enough to do to roll out the same. Yeah. yeah, there needs to be some tweaks uh, occasionally. Sometimes we forget to tweak yeah. it, so it doesn't make as much sense for our Facebook people. Sorry. Um, Instagram is, you know, we've got a much bigger audience there, but Facebook has a really high conversion rate. So they're not to be forgotten, Facebook. Um, yeah, they're still a really important community and um, an avenue for for us for marketing and, and kind of customers. Um, and we do a lot of kind of proactive uh, PR as well. So we'll, uh, we've got a good relationship with a lot of online and print media and we speak with them regularly about um, opportunities, whatever harebrain idea I've got coming up for some story or um, a product launch or whatever it might be and I've got a very thick skin mm. and often no one writes back to me and I don't mind. I've got a question about that actually because I think, you know, like you said before, keep if you feel competent to kind of like take PR, keep it internal because it can be a big investment and it's hard to measure, et cetera, which makes complete sense. But when you're starting out and you don't have those relationships with journalists but you can't afford someone to pay somebody to do your PR, like how do you start to get some traction with with journos and with yeah. the media? Like do you have any tips or any thoughts? Well, it, the easiest way is when you've got something that's newsworthy for them. So when I started in media, I remember the first thing I was working on was like the sale of a company, a tiny company that um, did like kettles and they 
no one cared. But my <laughs> manager was like, you just have to, so you send the media release and then you call them up and then you send another email. You're just kind of hounding them. And I found that so um, thankless mm. and um, disheartening. I, I think the better thing to do is to just approach them when there's something really newsworthy. And that's the hardest thing with a brand yeah. because it's not often you've got something really newsworthy well, to talk about. Especially now. There's nothing going on. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> totally. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's a tough one. But I think that it, um, they like hearing from the founder of the company and you've got an, a story to tell in a way that a PR agent can't tell your own story. Um People love a startup story. Mm. Look at you guys. I think um, you're telling you're telling those stories mm. all the time. So, well, as you as you said, I mean, like the worst thing that can happen is they just don't reply. Mm. <laughs> you just keep you just keep pitching until something lands, I suppose. Yeah, yeah. I don't think you can ke- keep pitching the same thing. No, not, that, not the same thing. <laughs> Different things, but yeah, Maybe really different yeah. things <laughs> until something until something sticks. But um, yeah, the worst. Yeah, thing totally. Is that, you know, they say no or they don't reply. Yeah, it's not that big yeah. of a deal. It's just the opportunity yeah, cost know, of time. Yeah, and know the audience that you're um, pitching to. So. Um, you know, have a look at what other stories that they have written on and what might fit within um, their beat and, you know, maybe you can do something that's tailored a bit for them, particularly things like collaborations where you can leverage off other people's brand um, as well and that partnership, that gives you double the chance Mm. in a way of kind of getting the word out there. Um, Yeah, look, there's so much you could talk about in terms of how to get um, PR. That's probably an, another okay, another episode, another session. <laughs> oh, you can call yeah. me. I can give you my, my, the things that have worked and the many, many, many that have not. <laughs> yeah, great. Okay, <laughs> follow up on that. <laughs> like the one our PR agent one time wanted us to drive a Fiat with like Kip written all over it um, up the coast of New South Wales. That. That was not one that got off the ground. That didn't happen? <laughs> no. So uh, you have expanded Kip & Co overseas. You're in the US now, so it's kind of come full circles. The idea came from there and now you're, you know, obviously offering your products over there, which is wonderful. Where do you want to take the brand? You know, what's the kind of ultimate long-term vision for Kip & Co? I think things have changed in the last six months and um, – if in five years' time Kip & Co is still making beautiful homewares that are making people happy and we're doing well locally, I will be happy. I think my uh, kind of expansion dreams have been pared back a little bit. And it's not to say we we won't still do it, but you just I'm a bit more reflective now on uh how lucky we are here in Australia and how loyal and supportive our customer is here and I'm kind of happy. So if Kip can just be around, then that'd be good. Yeah, I love that. Okay, a couple of final questions. What is one thing that you need right now? (laughs) Uh, A vaccine (laughs) and a holiday, I think. 
<laughs> yeah, that's two things. But the, yeah, once the first one happens, then we can take. Then you can have the second one. Yep. <laughs> What's been one of the biggest lessons that you've learned, maybe over the last, you know, six to twelve months? I think I've been really amazed at um, how nimble we can be and we have been, and uh, knowing that that we've got that ability kind of gives you a bit more um, freedom, I suppose. So, yeah, we've we've made a lot of really quick decisions. Not all of them were right, um, but I think that our gut was generally uh, heading, heading in the right direction. And so, yeah, just coming back, I guess, to trusting, trusting your gut has been pretty good. Yeah, always got to trust your gut, that's for sure. <laughs> yeah. And finally, we would love to give you the opportunity, as we do to everybody on our podcast, to give a shout out to one woman who has helped you on your business journey. That might be hard because we've got two female co-founders. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, look, I would have to. They are sisters, yeah. so they're almost okay, like one. That counts as one. I, honestly, they sound... They sound so similar. Sometimes I don't know which one I'm talking to if you're talking on the phone and they sort of share a brain. So um, in, a, in a nice way, not like each of them have half a brain. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, I absolutely couldn't, wouldn't have done mm. Gibb & Co with anyone else and it wouldn't be what it is without those two. So I've ha- had a lot of amazing female bosses though in my um, pretty much every job I've had, I've had a female boss and I've learned a lot from those women and and then other ones that I've just approached because I've got girl crushes on, like Joe Horgan. Oh, yeah, I, she know. used to be my boss. I used to work at Mecca. Yeah. I know, yeah. <laughs> I just think she's so she's awesome. Ama- I heard her amazing. speak at something yeah. and I emailed her and um, we went and had coffee and she took me into Mecca, like, She's such you a know, lovely person. The woman person. is so freaking busy. Yeah. <laughs> she doesn't know me from a bar of soap. I just think that generosity mm. that she showed then, and it's that, um, and it's a, a trait that was true of the other female bosses that I've had that I'm thinking of, has been kind of really shaped mm. me in terms of who I am now as a as a businesswoman well, too. Thank you so much for your time and for thanks. tuning in. Thank that so was really much. really great. It was amazing. Cool. Yeah. Um, and thanks for your podcast. Oh. I really like it. And I know Amy, my um, our marketing coordinator, is massive massive fan oh, too. Oh, and that, that's so, nice. so thank you. Yeah, it's really awesome what you're doing, and I do think it's so helpful for people starting out like I would just be totally binging on this so yeah good on you it's awesome Thanks, Alec, for such an open and honest chat. We really appreciate how candid you were. And this chat definitely got us thinking about how and where we should be spending our marketing dollars. It's kind of a fine balance. Do you invest in digital marketing, which has a really clear return on investment? Or do you invest in PR, a strategy whose return is a little more difficult to measure, but it can go a long way in building brand equity and awareness? The answer is that you should be doing both, using the resources you have at your disposal, whether that's cash monies or simply your own time. If the world of PR and media seems a little overwhelming to you, don't stress. We're developing a PR cheat sheet with Alex shortly. To find out when it drops, make sure you head on over to our Instagram at lady.brains. Okay, our second takeaway. Figuring out how to price your product is a little bit of a process. However, Alex provided some really great insights into how to break it down. Firstly, do your damn research. Find out the prices of similar products and decide if you want to be above market, at market rate or below. 
Figure out your cost of goods and remember to always bake the proper margins into your pricing if you plan to sell wholesale or retail down the track. If you want to hear why this is so important, go back and listen to one of our earlier episodes with Jess from Hello Hair. She created an iconic $15 hair mask, but because she didn't factor the proper margins into her pricing from the beginning, she's now in a really tough position because she can't actually sell her product in retailers like Priceline or Sephora, despite the fact that some of the biggest brands ever have come knocking at her door. With the retailer's margins, selling her $15 hair mask would actually mean operating at a loss. You really want to avoid getting into this position, so make sure at the get-go you do your due diligence. Okay, that's it from us. Remember to head on over to our Instagram at lady.brains for all the behind the scenes podcast news. And if you want to connect with all the other awesome women who listen to this show, head on over to our Facebook group, The Lady Brains Clubhouse. Ciao.